For the last few weeks, you've heard me mention that Intentionally Disruptive is brought to you by Microformulas. Well, you've also heard me talk about my long list of health issues, endometriosis, rheumatoid arthritis, anxiety, ADHD, and I spent almost a year fighting C. diff. Well, I've been taking Microformulas products for over a year now, and I've never felt better. If you're curious to give the products a try, visit microformulas.com and use the code IDFEB15 for an extra 15% off at checkout. That's IDFEB15. Visit microformulas online at microformulas.com. A podcast about life. I mean, that's a struggle, I think, with every single day. Are we good enough? Everything it can throw at you. The only person that can make us happy is ourselves. Real people talking about life's real issues. Oh, yeah, there you go. This is Intentionally <laughs> Disruptive with Shauna McNeil. Our series this month is called Unconventional Love Stories. The series is all about overcoming many obstacles and, in the end, love winning. This is episode number three of the series, and it's called Love is Love. Joining the podcast this week are Jamie and Janice. They have been together for four and a half years. Did I get that right? Yep, you sure did. Married for two years. Yep. Okay, now, I mean, this is a big deal for you guys. I, I really appreciate you coming in and sharing your story. And I, before we even get started, I, I just want to say writing up the summary for this episode was one of the easiest things I've ever had to do because I have admired you two from afar for years. We live in the same neighborhood, we share some mutual friends, we've done a couple of charity events together, and you you both just live life to the fullest. You both lead with your hearts, and everything that you do, you could tell I'm starting to get teared up just thinking about it. You guys lead with your hearts in everything you do, and I just, I admire you both as individuals and as a couple, and I, I just appreciate you being here, I feel so honored that you're sharing your story for the first time on this podcast. So thank you very much. Thank you. I kind of want to start with the the road that led you to one another. And I guess Jamie is volunteering Janice yeah, to go, go first. And you know what's so great is that I volunteered to go first last time. So this time I'm going to let her. <laughs> oh, she switched it. Yes. She switched it on you. Okay. Um, in a nutshell, I'm one of five kids. I'm a triplet. The three of us grew up. I was never alone. Um, always had someone in those early years. Between the ages of about 10 and 11, I had some sexual abuse from two different people and um, really internalized that as a kid. Um, How old were you? It was between the ages of 9 to 11. Okay. Yeah, so quite a, a healthy span of time, uh, multiple times by two different people and um, just being young and not knowing how to communicate that or um, cry for help, just moved on, stuffed it down, and that kind of created its own uh, beast within me. I found myself searching for, for something to identify me, you know, what identified me, and it was sports. Um, I was a huge athlete, um, so I just, I, I dove in obsessively, soccer, basketball, tennis. I think one year, my eighth grade year, I played five different sports in one year, and um, so just was doing all these things to define who I was, and that um, led into a whole nother uh, set of things as a child, you know, a high school kid trying to figure out who I was and, you know, who I was at a pers as a person, who I loved. I had some struggles of um, my sexuality and being raised in a pretty conservative Christian home that wasn't a dinner table conversation that we worked through as a family. It was, 
I really stuck to internalizing that. And I mean, really not ever even having conversations about it. It was something that I didn't know really existed or was okay. There was just massive confusion. So I found different ways to kind of numb the confusion and pain in some situations. And through a double knee surgery at 10 years old, kind of kind of created a, a drug addiction. And then you I, had double knee surgery at 10? I did. Yeah. And um, I was in a wheelchair for a month. How did that happen? Soccer. Oh, soccer. And looking back in hindsight, it was so interesting. My family didn't have the money for that. And I just, I really needed I needed the surgery and my parents did everything they could to help me and they were amazing and I'm really thankful for that, you know, today looking back. But a lot of pain came from that and a lot of pain ensued after that. So the surgery they did actually um, three years later, the uh, ligaments and some things that, some work that they had done had kind of reversed. So within three to four years, I needed a surgery again. So I had another double knee surgery oh at 16. And at oh 16 my. now, I had dealt with um, some sexual abuse, some massive internal turmoil, you know, kind of struggling with religion in my soul and and my sexuality and how all of that played together or didn't. And, and just had a full-blown eating disorder, drug addiction to Oxycontin and Tramadol. And, and that was kind of the beginning of a short-term end. Now, um, when you say that you, um, you you were sexually abused twice, mm-hmm. you, and you mentioned that your parents, you know, being kind of conservative and not talking about sexuality and things like that, did you share with them the sexual abuse, or did they not know at this point? They didn't know. Okay. My best friend knew shortly after, just because I had a nightmare at her house, and I was just a kid. You know, you wake up at yeah. 11 years old, and you have a nightmare, and you tell your friend or your sibling or your parent or whatever, and... So I told her and, you know, we knew the dad that it was and it was just something that we just. So it was a family friend that. One of them was a family friend and one of them was a friend at a place I played basketball in the summer. So you have a painkiller, you have pain medicine addiction, Mm -hmm. oxycodone and tramadol. And Mm -hmm. I know tramadol all too well from all the surgeries I had. I was going down that road. Yeah. Yeah. Quite a few years. It's a magic mix. The two of them. Yeah, absolutely is. It's deadly. So how long did the addiction last? Um, it lasted about eight years when, it, you know, from it kind of being full blown when I was a teenager until my world just collided. Um, I had uh, gotten married and um, within three months, I, so I had gotten married to a man and great man, but just wasn't right for me personally. And I just couldn't do it anymore. The turmoil that I had just f- struggled with for years about you know, who I loved and how I loved and if it was okay or not okay and by whose standards. And it just came to a crash one night and I, I overdosed. And then I had to make some big choices a couple of days later. Was I going to, so part of the overdose was that then the, I had two different doctors prescribing prescriptions and they of course were enlightened on what was going on. And so my prescriptions were pulled and, and it really changed my justification of what I had done, you know, in my head, my name was on all the bottles. So it was okay. And I didn't have a problem and these doctors are giving it to me. So, so everything's good. But at that point, when the scripts were pulled, I had to choose, was I going to go to street drugs or was I going to get my together and go in a different path? And I decided it was time to get my shit together because street drugs just wasn't acceptable in my head. Yeah. It's just a totally different world. So that was the that was my new beginning, and it was hard. 
And I really had to, for the first time in my life, you know, as a 22 or 23 year old, stand on my own two feet, you know, barely, and just say, okay, everyone, I love you. I know you love me, but I can't hear it anymore. I've got to figure out what's right for me and what I believe and and what path I'm going to take. And and my family respected that, actually. They did pretty good. They're all a little bit different. You know, they all believe different things. And I've got some siblings that are 100% on board to let me pursue my own journey and figure out what I believe and what direction I want to go. And my folks struggle with it, but no matter what our beliefs are, I've never doubted if they love me. And I think that helped, you know, even though we have different political and religious views, I've never once doubted their love for me as a human or as their daughter. And you, I mean, I, I, I tell you guys this all the time, I see you guys on Facebook and I see your your families are really close and mm-hmm. you know, I mean, they just, they love you and you can mm-hmm. see that even in the photos, you guys spend a lot of time together, mm-hmm. you're super tight. I do remember one thing that you said during our little podcast pre-interview that really stuck with me and it was during your you know, addiction with the painkillers and you said that you were prescribed them so it wasn't a problem. And then you would manipulate the doctors to kind of get you what you needed. Yep. And that stuck out to me because that was my thing with Adderall. You mm. know, like I, I I left your house that, that day and I'm like, man, because I told myself, well, it's okay if I take an extra one. It's okay if I do that because I'm prescribed it. And really, it's not okay. Mm-hmm. And I still have a hard time admitting that maybe I did have an issue with that. So... It's such a hard thing for yeah. um, doctors, you know, like yeah. they can be so careful and follow every rule in the book to help them be successful in prescribing things to their patients. But then it's our job, you know, then it's our job, you know, within reason, there's some exceptions, you know, from some doctors. But in my case, I had two really great doctors that cared about me and knew that I was in a lot of pain. Yeah. I did have knee pain up until just a few years ago, but once I got that prescription, it was my job to use it to how it was yeah. prescribed. And when you're a drug addict, you're a, an amazing manipulator. Yeah. So I leverage those relationships and, and you don't even see it when you're in it. You have no idea that you're being deceitful. And so it was a blessing in disguise that they found out because if, if uh, you know, my mom hadn't called and said, hey, by the way, my daughter just OD'd, I would have just kept going down that path and wouldn't be where I am today. And when you hit your breaking point, you wrote letters to your family members. Mm-hmm. I did, yeah. It Really, it was just describing what was going on and that I loved them, and I never didn't love them. I just didn't love myself because I was fighting with, am I going to hell? Is it okay that I you know, have fallen in love with my best friend and our church tells us that it's not okay and the people that are part of that community tell us it's not okay and you know when I did come out I was kind of excommunicated from what I would consider was a you know pretty neutral Christian church not massively conservative and that kind of destroyed me that because who I loved I all of a sudden lost a whole group of people that I had invested in and they had invested in me and you know I'm the same person and no matter who I love, I love them respectfully yeah. and well, and I listen to them. And I'm not saying I'm perfect at loving anyone, but I love with every bit of my being. And I just couldn't figure out how loving someone, no matter what the gender was, was so 
I don't really know the word, would just rock their world so much that they were willing to let go of what I had with these other people. It just mm-hmm. didn't, I couldn't comprehend that. And it really, I mean, it ate me alive inside. So you recover from the overdose mm-hmm. and you sit down with your family and you talk to them, say, this is, this is who I am. This is, this is how I'm going to live my life. What happened after that? Um, I really had to go on my own healing journey. I had a best friend that really helped me along the way and was there when I called at three in the morning and said, it's taking everything in me not to go out my front door and get some heroin. And having that one person that would answer the phone whenever I called is what saved my life and got me through that first year. And she is religious and disagrees with my lifestyle, but she loves has loved me so well. Mm-hmm. And she's never judged me. She loves me for who I am. and. And she answered the phone every single time. And she showed up or let me show up so that I wasn't alone when I needed it. And she encouraged me. I started racing triathlons and really moved my obsession from drugs to being athletic again, you know, back to kind of the what defines me. But the racing triathlons and the amount of obsessive exercise I getting was just really excellent dopamine that I needed in my system. So it kind of fulfilled that addiction piece in me, but really also helped me get healthy. And, you know, when I wanted some pills, I'd go to the gym and work out for two hours. And almost exactly a year later, I completed the Boise Half Ironman 70.3. Amazing. And my whole family was there and they knew the journey I had been on. You know, they weren't massively involved, but they were super supportive the whole time. They were as involved as I would let them, let's say that. And every single one of them were there. My siblings flew in from Austin, Dallas, Portland, and a couple of my best friends. And they just, they made camp all over the race course to know that I wasn't alone. And crossing that finish line was one of the biggest successes in my life. It wasn't about the Ironman. It wasn't, you know, I didn't place. I'm not a professional racer or anything like that. But it was completing something. And it was kind of like the the one year wrap up of holy shit, this has been a hard journey and I can yeah. do it and all these people are behind me. And that was such an empowering moment that um, it was just so healing in a moment. I mean, crossing that finish line and seeing all of them was just something that I, I can't describe. It was like a whole nother journey yeah. started after that. And I wish I had that in me. I, I'm, I, I struggle currently with like, mine is now food. You know, I, I've kind of like I, I'm emotional eater now. I never used to be that way, but that's just kind of like my new thing. I'll emotionally eat, and I can't get that wall down. <laughs> this is what you're talking about, like just okay. Instead of going out and looking for pills, go to the gym. I can't get there, and I don't. I'm working on it, but I can't. And I know it's it's all within. You got to do it within. Nobody mm-hmm. could tell you exactly what to do or what to feel, but I'm in that place, and I have meltdowns daily about it. I just can't get there, and. It's a lot of hard work and people don't realize. It was my why. You know, yeah, I had to yeah. figure out my why and my was I'm not going to be a street drug addict. Yeah. Because I had such, ne- you know. That I was such, your boundary. Yeah, yeah. I have such negative connotations and I, and I don't know why. And maybe it's privilege. Maybe it's like I'm better than that. And I would hope that's not the case. But that was my cutoff. Yeah. And for that year, it was nothing is going to stop me because I am not willing to be a street drug addict. You know, and then my why changed. Yeah. You know, it changed to, okay, now I don't want to be broke. So now I'm going to start working on, I want to be better at work. And, you know, how do I get promoted? And how do I get to my next goal? And, you know, things start, your hunger for more changes as you start uh, getting healthier. Yeah. So 
you know, my things changed and I started flipping houses and that had, you know, it was very common for at Christmas for there to be blueprints on the on the uh, living room table and we're all looking over blueprints and analyzing it as a family and we just love that. And that's where I ended up meeting Janice and so I'll let her share some of her story and, you know, then it was a whole new chapter. We had the tissues ready because I, mean, I know Janice, yeah. <laughs> she, we're it's trying to keep one. it together. It's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's no keeping it together. Yeah, I'm definitely the emotional one here. <laughs> Um, I love listening to the story. I mean, we've we've talked about this together so many times, and every time there's just something new, and something new that really um, like connects us together because we had very very different upbringings, very different. <laughs> My parents, they were both pretty good alcoholics, very professional alcoholics. They really liked to go out and party and and have a good time. And so because of that, I spent a lot of time with my grandparents. My grandparents pretty much raised me. I would stay with them every night. My mom would try to come pick me up at one, two o'clock in the morning after she'd been at the bar drinking. And I just remember sitting and listening to my grandparents and my mom just, you know, having these knockdown drag out fights that, you know, my grandparents aren't going to let me go. And the nights that I would go home, my mom had some incredibly abusive relationships um, that I saw her get choked, get pulled around by her hair, get pulled into her bedroom with the door locked so I couldn't come in. And just remember hearing all of this, all of these things when I am, you know, five years old. And this happened up through about the time that I was about nine. And that was when I really started spending a lot more time with my grandparents because it was healthier for me. It was kind of easier on my mom because, you know, it was one less stress of her needing to come and pick me up in the middle of the night. And so just this like, you know, the the connection of it wasn't abusive to me ever. I mean, there was never any anything towards me. But, you know, that abuse as a child that you're witnessing, yeah. um, especially, you know, there's this parent and um, that you just love unconditionally and you're seeing all of these things. And then at the same time, like, why does she continue to choose these abusive relationships and these abusive men over wanting to spend time with me? So yeah, it also know. makes you feel unsafe. Oh, absolutely. Unsafe, yeah. insecure, you know, that confidence of what is wrong with me that I'm not the one that she's choosing. But luckily, I mean, I have this, my grandparents are my saving grace. They were amazing. They kept me safe every night. They, I was bathed, I was fed, I was clothed, I was all of that. They just loved me no matter what. And so I didn't have any siblings, so I'm an only child. And um, so I got all the attention from my grandparents, which was awesome. So I'm sure that that's probably, you know, helped to compensate for the, you know, for that lack that I had with my own parents. My dad was in and out of prison probably up until about 16 years ago. So I didn't really see my dad a lot. I didn't really um, want to, you know, he would show up at my birthday parties being carried in by his friends because he couldn't walk to the front door because he had been at the bar all day. I had picked him up from jail more times than I, you know, that I mm-hmm. cared to count. I would go and visit him in prison every single Saturday. So that was really um, uh, the first probably, you know, 20 years or so of my life. So then one day when I was about 17 years old, my best friend and I, we uh, went and hung out with a bunch of our friends. And that was the night that I was introduced to um, drugs. We made a decision, a really bad one, to go and experiment with street drugs. 
and that lasted for the next eight years. And uh, I mean, I was a functioning adult. I was able to go to work every day. I, you know, um, I got married when I was um, 22 years old. Um, when I was 19, my ex-husband and I, that's when we met. 22, we got married. 26, we had Sebastian. We loved to party together. It was great. It was fun. We had lots of friends. We had, we partied every weekend and it was awesome. And at that time, it was just, you know, it wasn't a big deal. And um, it turned into a big deal. It turned into a really big deal. And one day when I was 25 years old, decided that it was time to grow up and that it's time to have a baby. Like, let's, yeah. let's, have, a, let's have a child. And I had some struggles with that. Um, had three miscarriages before um, Sebastian came along. Um, to kind of rewind a little bit, um, my mom passed away from cervical cancer when I was um, 22 years old. Um, she passed away on April 18th of 1998. Sebastian was born on April 18th of 2002. Oh, wow. He is the little angel baby. Um, what an amazing kid. He is really an amazing kid. He is the most amazing kid. He is my higher power, and I have said that so many times. That child has um, continually lifted me up when he and he has absolutely no idea. So, um, so that pretty much takes us um, through, you know, the, you know, Jamie sits and talks about, um, you know, she had this prescription with her name on it and it makes it okay. And the, you know, the amount of time that she struggled with um, pills is the amount, same amount of time that I struggled with really that drug party phase until finally about eight years later um, it was just time it was time to make a decision because things were going to either go one way or another so Sebastian um, he and I are best friends he's been that person for me for a long time I'm his mom first but he's obviously he's always always been there for me when he was five his dad and I got divorced so from then on it was really the two of us I started to um, you know, I would have wine at dinner, and then I would have a drink with dinner, and then it would turn into, you know, Sebastian would go to bed, and then I'd have a couple more drinks after he went to bed. And then next thing I know, Sebastian's 10 years old, and I have a really good alcohol problem. I didn't drink in front of my son. I would wait until he would go to bed. I would go out with friends, and I wouldn't drink because I would drink a half a bottle of vodka before I left. Mm. I had it all figured out. I was... You're still I'm holding down a job and everything. Holding at this down time. a job, every yeah. killing a job, not just holding I, it down. Yes, yeah. um, owning I, your job. I mm -hmm. had yes, I had just um, started a new job um, in a management role, and I went to work every single day. I was dedicated, um, reliable, just everything that I needed to be. But you know, I was driving out of the parking lot at the end of the day and pulling the vodka bottle out from underneath of my car seat, mm. and so. Um, one day, Sebastian came home from school, and he found a mound of empty vodka bottles um, in the closet that I'd been hiding because I didn't want to put them all in the garbage can because what would the garbage man think if he saw a bunch of vodka bottles? You know, that was... So you were hoarding them in exactly. the closet. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, that was my yeah. main concern is what is the garbage man going to think? 
Um, and so he found them and um, started crying. And that night, my ex-husband came over. Two of my family members came over. And they dumped out the very full vodka bottle that was in my closet, took everything, put it in the trash. My ex-husband, um, he, he took Sebastian to be able to let me figure out what needed to be done. Yeah. Um, Sebastian stayed with him for a few days, and I detoxed. I laid in my bed for three days, which was the absolute worst three days of my entire life. I've heard alcohol is one of the worst. It one of is. The worst ones. If you have ever had any kind of addiction and you have tried to detox from that, the sweats, the shaking, the disgusting things that are happening to your body, it is the reason that I'm eight years sober. It is the reason that I will never, ever go back to day one. I mean, there is not a damn thing in this world that is worth going back to that. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, so eight years, um, January 4th, it was eight years for me. November 28th was eight years for her. And so, you know, we just both um, went down this road of um, this addiction and we did, we got to this point where gosh, it is time to make a change. Um, you know, we both hit that rock bottom. We hit mm -hmm. the rock bottom that was just the, we're not gonna do this anymore and we are better than this. And we, you know, we have proven to the world that we are. And, you know, after I stopped doing the drugs, I, don't get me wrong, I didn't even attempt or ever think about doing an Ironman or a half Ironman. That was never anything in my <laughs> but brain. But you're a gifted runner. But, you would run for miles well, and miles. And that was where my, you know, where my focus went was that was it. I would just run. I mean, I would get up in the morning and I would run for eight, 10, 12 miles, and it was no big deal. And so a year and a half later, I had, I ran my first half marathon, and then it just kind of went from there. Yeah. I just, I did a bunch of runs and just, you know, stayed healthy and just all of that. And these, so this is your journey separately. This yeah. is before mm -hmm. you even meet. And I got to get the tissue, because the story of how you two met and came together, oh my gosh, is the most incredible story and I don't know who, if you guys share, share the spotlight on this one, however you guys want to do it, but it is such an incredible story how you two come together. <laughs> Jamie got the point. Okay. So, um, so she will tell you that the, well, why don't you say about Starbucks? That part's your story. So Jamie and I met, we'll just start. Jamie and I met um, in 2015, but a few months before that, I was at work, Sebastian was in football, I decided to, um, I had left work um, to go and see his football game. And I was a little early, so there's a Starbucks on Vista that I went and I sat um, over there and just did some work for a little bit until um, Sebastian's game started. So I was sitting there working and this beautiful girl walks by, you know, and double take just like anybody would if you see a beautiful person that walks by. And she's sitting behind me and she's doing all these interviews. So I kind of scoot my chair back a little bit because I'm thinking, you know, I interview a ton of people all the time with my job. And so this is a great opportunity for me to get some really great, you know, tips. Like, what do they do at Starbucks? Because this is really great. And so being the stalker that I am, and I just start <laughs> sitting back and, and I'm listening to her and, you know, just all of that and no big deal. And I get up and I leave and I go to my son's football game and, you know, that's that. So then fast forward, if, I don't even know how many months, six months or so, I um, had just purchased a home um, in downtown Boise as a flip investment project. 
and I get there one day and there's a note on the front door and the note says, hey, you know, you don't know who I am, but my grandparents raised me in this house and we planted rose bushes. If you're going to get rid of them in your remodel, it would mean the world to me to have them. And sidebar, my family, my folks had just sold my childhood home of 20 years. Um, And I was, I mean, I walked through every single room of that, you know, 2,500, 3,500 square feet and just cried. And, um, you know, all the memories, totally sentimental. And it got me. So when I'm, you know, a week later, when I'm reading this note from this total stranger that wants the rose bushes, I'm like, you can have all the rose bushes. I don't even care. Take anything you want. Just let me know. So I shoot her a text and, and say just that, and, um, you know, you're welcome to come over. And so she came over and opened the door, and, and I asked if she wanted to, you know, walk through the home one more time, and, and I was starting to get it. So I, you know, it hurt my heart a little bit because yeah. I knew it was her place of peace, and she just walked around the house like we had known each other for years, and just you could see the stories in her eyes. Um, and she was sharing sharing some of them with me, and but you could see that she was going through the same process I went through, yeah. um, just a couple weeks before. Of, you know, my family went through this home, and her grandparents had that home for more years than I even, you know, thirty, forty years, fifty years. So in a sense, I knew what she was feeling, and it was I was so thankful to be able to provide that for this total stranger. Janice, what did you do when you opened the door and realized it was Jamie, the person from Starbucks? Well, you know, what was really interesting was that she opened the door and I just, I immediately knew that I knew her from somewhere and I just, I could not figure it out. And I mean, I still remember the day, I I remember exactly what she looked like, what she had on, the jacket that she has on, the, you know, just all of it. Because it's true, like, my grandparents bought this house in 1950, and my mom grew up in that house and all of her siblings. And when my grandparents passed away, Sebastian and I moved back into that house. And oh. so we had a year of really, like, there was a lot of shit that happened in that house for me growing up. So all of these memories that, um, you know, just all of it. I mean, we walk into this house and there is, you know, everything that I remember, the walls, the colors, the floor, that everything is totally different. And it was like this, it was how, it's how it was supposed to be. Like the memories that I had of that house, not all of them were good. And she was coming in, this total stranger, giving this amazing house that I grew up in the facelift that it needed and the fresh start that it needed and like to wash away all those you know just bad memories I guess Mm -hmm. um there was um there was a lot of great things that happened in that house for my you know my grandparents for my um, mom for Sebastian I mean he took his first steps in that house you know just Mm -hmm. all of these are really great things but now we have you know she comes in as this total stranger not knowing any of this and not understanding like how cleansing it was to walk through and have somebody walk in there that has this vision of this you know this house and how beautiful that she could make it for for someone else because it was time it was time to really close that door and allow someone else to make their own memories there and she has this gift that is just I mean this beautiful beautiful home um, of what she did with it 
So, um, so I work on the home, and I go to list it a few months later after I finish the project, and I send her one last text. And you know, at this point, we're both you know in our own relationships and emotional or romantic. It was just genuinely caring for this human that's a stranger. And I just said, hey, by the way, I'm listing it next week. If you want to come walk through one more time before, you know, before we sell it, you're more than welcome to. And I remember very intentionally saying it's not the home you grew up in if if you don't want to come back it's okay i mean walls blown out multiple walls blown out totally bare bones gutted lots of things changed and i wanted to make sure that that wasn't going to be harmful and she came through and it was so satisfying to see this i mean she just lit up the minute she walked in the door and we sold the house and you know she walked through it and loved it and I got her a thumbs up and we sold the house and made some money and moved on and um, then how long until so you guys were friends so that was kind yeah. of your, the starting point of your friendship yeah so right? I um yeah. I actually was transferred to uh, Park City Utah for work um I trained store managers and I had an opportunity up there that I took and um so I said hey by the way I'm moving you know I'm moving in a week and in fact I think I moved before I closed the house and um, so we just figured some things out and so we went months and I was working on new and great projects over there and about every six months or so one of us would text and say hey I hope you're doing well and you know how's life how's work and yeah a few text message exchange and that was that and then one um, I think it was a Saturday morning working and running my store at Starbucks in Park City and we're slammed and I get this text and um, that says, hey, are you working today? And I'm like, f***. <laughs> <laughs> Adam, insert bleep. Yep. Oh yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> and, um, and I'm thinking, uh-oh. You know, I don't even have my nice pants on. I have my work pants on. And oh, so you care? Like, oh no. Apparently, like, which is so weird yeah. because I, you know, it just hadn't ever gone there. Yeah. And she walked in the door with Sebastian and one of his friends and and something happened. I saw her and there was, I don't know. I just, the smile was just something happened. Then. It clicked. Yep. Yeah. And I knew that was truly when I was like, uh-oh. I got goosebumps. Um, you know, <laughs> yeah. again, we were in relationships and both very healthy and respectful. And both of them were kind of, uh, we were discovering they weren't healthy and great for us anymore. So, but we certainly were, you know, we weren't cheaters or anything like that. So she showed up that day and then we walked around the strip mall in Park City on my 30 minute lunch break and <laughs> um, and just got to share some stories. And that was when I met Sebastian for the first time. And How old was Sebastian at the time? Gosh, 12, 13, uh, no, 13 or 14, 14 maybe? 14. Yeah. 14. Cutest little kid, biggest buck teeth. And he had, <laughs> I think he had just gotten braces and just such a little stage compared to where he is now. It's kind of crazy. and. So just fast forward from there, we buttoned some things up in our own homes. And then I came back to Boise for my dad's 70th birthday. And I said, would you like to go to dinner with me? So you parted ways in Park City, parted yep. ways, yeah. continued to be friends. Yep. And then you come back to Boise for your dad's birthday. Yeah. Are you guys still in relationships at this point? Um, yes, technically, but we're working on it. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. 
So we go and have dinner. So we decide we're going to go to, um, we meet downtown at Eureka. She drives in from Salt Lake. And this was the very first time that, um, you know, that I've, I've seen her since we um, we saw six months, six months prior in Park City. And so this was really the first time since she sold the house that we had a chance to just sit down. We didn't really, we knew each other a little bit through text messaging and, you know, yeah. um, and that was about it. And so this night we go and we sit down and have dinner and, we just we sat and talked for I don't know five hours oh, and wow. it was amazing it was like you we know, tipped this, our server really well yeah yeah Eureka's <laughs> yeah, a great great. Yeah. Too. that's yeah. a good choice yeah. Yeah. it's one awesome. of my favorites yeah so we have this great time this night just like sitting and I mean we cried and we laughed and just all of this just really all this stuff that we have talked about you know over the um, past hour or so just going into a lot more detail and just really talking through just our lives and just where we are, you know, the people that we are and um, struggles and, and um, accomplishments and, you know, the wins that we've had and just all of that. And yeah. it was perfect. It was like we had been friends for a million years. And we've both yeah. said that it was, uh, well, I guess for me personally, we, um, I've never been friends with someone before I had a romantic relationship with them. It was such a rich conversation because we had built this platform of respect and yeah. um, mutual understanding and you are who you are, so I don't have to prove a point or convince you to fall in love with me. Pretend to be anybody I'm not. Exactly. Yeah. Uh-huh. Exactly. Yeah. So the dinner, the texting till two in the morning, <laughs> what's next? I separated from the relationship that I was in because I knew at that point that there was a connection between her and I and that it was going to go further. And gosh, and then, you know, I'm in Boise, she's in Salt Lake, and uh, she made a decision that she was going to come back to Boise. And that's, you know, really where things took off. And um, you guys moved in together. Yep, I moved in with her and, and Sebastian and... You know, and Sebastian has been an, an interesting piece of all of this, obviously. And, um, you know, people often have questions about how that went, and I'll let her speak to that. But, you know, I came in, and in my opinion, at this really freaking awesome time in his life. You know, he was 15 years old, and he was riding his mountain bike and starting to ask questions about girls. And I'm like, woohoo, I can do this. <laughs> this is my wheelhouse. Yes. And, um, you know, so we just, we got some awesome time together, and but it was a transition, and there was a lot of learning. I mean, I was, you know, 30 years old and hadn't had a child of my own, and he had a system and a routine with his mom, and so, you know, lots of learning of what's my new role, and, right. you know, how can I love this kid to the best of my ability, and, you know, and respect. There's just, there are a lot of, there are a lot of learnings. Um, some were easy, and some were really freaking hard. And, um, you know, and the way she parents is something that I could never have even fathomed. And it's amazing. And it's such a testament. I mean, seeing who he is at, he'll be 19 in a couple of months, who the human he is today is absolutely because of the way that she has loved him and taught him and trained him and, and that the communication and the way she's taught him to think and learn and understand consequences. I mean, his, uh, his emotional intelligence is just sky high. And it, it's just exceptional, but it's something I never understood. You know, I was more of a, almost a dictatorship of, you know, you do what dad says and yeah. um, you respect mom while dad's gone. Otherwise there's the wrath of God at 5.30 and um, you don't ask questions. You just, you know, he says jump and you ask how high. And it was just a very different household, so. I wanna talk about the wedding. Okay. Let's <laughs> talk about the wedding. Okay. 
all the feels. How how what happened? How did it happen? Like what was the whole? I want to hear the whole story. So I knew that I was ready to to propose to her, and I don't know why, but I always knew that I was going to be the one to propose. So I'd been working with our good friend at Diamond Girls in downtown Boise, and I heard they're fantastic. Oh, they're I amazing! I want to get more than amazing. Oh gosh, yeah. amazing! And you know what? And she just helped me through each stage of it because yeah. I didn't know what I was doing. Mm-hmm. I wanted something special, and you know, I kind of, sort of had an idea, but we weren't that couple that was like, "Here, this is the ring I want. When you're ready, this is the you know." I had kind of an idea, and so I picked out this beautiful stone and took home $100,000 of bands that she got to choose from. But So we actually have a unique thing. Like something comes up, and we say that's a rule. So rule number one is no lying. And rule number two is no going to bed angry, and we just make up numbers. Like we have a rule number 47 and a rule number 86. Yeah. And some of them are just funny, like not too many pillows on the bed because we can't sleep or whatever. They're all these, some are funny, some are serious. So, can we make a digital version of your rules for this podcast so we can attach um, it to social media or no? <laughs> uh, we could do some of them, not all of them, but we could do some of them. <laughs> um, So I, at the time, we had, I don't know, 15 rules or something. So she runs every single morning faithfully, five mornings a week, three or four miles, and I joined her for a while. And so that was kind of our thing in the morning. So I decided that I was going to propose on our run. I'm a realtor here in town, and I took all of my real estate signs, and I put one rule on each of the signs. Oh, So for a mile... There's, oh. she, you know, we're on mile two, and then she starts seeing this real number, real number, real number. And then the last couple of signs were, uh, will you be my wife or will you marry oh. me or something? And then, and I planned it perfectly. We love animals. And you do. We have a you thing guys. for cows. And yeah. um, the very last question was right in front of our baby cows. And it, it was the first place that she had told me she loved me because she decided to wait for two weeks after I told her I loved her. So that was awesome. Um, but this this place, this very place on Dry Creek Road in the middle of freaking nowhere in front of the baby cows. It really is. Yeah, nowhere. Yeah. I asked her if she'd be my wife, and she said yes. So it was a hard two miles after that. Tears. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> did you finish running? <laughs> oh, yeah. You did? Oh, yeah. oh my gosh. That I want your willpower. <laughs> I needed to I was terrified I was going to drop those diamonds. So. <laughs> oh, that is beautiful. That is so beautiful. Yeah. And where did you get married? Or how long after you got engaged? Did you? Yeah, we're all crying. We're all crying in here. <laughs> yeah. So we're engaged now. And, you know, there's all these things. Like, there are so many connections that Jamie and I have together. Um, and, you know, those baby cows, the, you know, the things that we just remember about each other. I mean, um, me telling her that, you know, that I love her in the same spot that she asked me to marry her. And, you know, um, one of the very, that very first weekend that we went to dinner, um, the second night we were going to go to a hockey game together. And um, she had some hockey tickets and we ended up just sitting and talking again for hours. And then at one point we just turned the music on and we're just blaring Breaking Benjamin, my uh-huh. absolute favorite band. Yeah. And she knew all the words. And I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> this is the coolest thing ever. No matter what song came on, of all of my favorite songs, she knew every damn word. And so that day that she asked me to marry her, I had gotten tickets for Breaking Benjamin that night. And so we get engaged that morning. We go see our favorite band that night uh-huh. and have the best, you know, the best seats and just all of that. I mean, if you talk about a perfect 
day. This was our perfect day. Um, so this was July of 2018. And so in March of 2019, March 24th, was when we got married, exactly two years to the day of our first dinner together at Eureka. <laughs> so we wake up that day, and it is MFing pouring down rain. Oh, that, that's good luck, I heard, and if so, you get married when it rains. Oh, really? Yeah, I, yeah, I heard that. I just panicked. <laughs> it, was, it was raining like nobody's business, and we had decided that we were going to get married at the very first place that we went snowshoeing. Mm-hmm. So a fun fact about the two of us, we hate to be cold. Why we like snowshoeing so much, I really don't know, because it's cold. It's cold. And um, <laughs> it's snow, and it's wet, and it's all of those things. Like, our perfect thing is every single year we go to Cabo, and we hang out there for 10 days, and the beach and the sun are our very favorite things. Uh-huh. And so here we are getting married at this most magnificent, beautiful, very first place that we went snowshoeing together. Mile so, marker 13 up the Bogus Basin Mile road. marker 13, <laughs> yes. And so... So we meet Joe, um, and we drive up the mountain, and about, I don't know, 15 minutes before we're, we're going to pull out, it is a whiteout snow. Like, you cannot see anything in front of you. It is snowing so hard. So we finally get to the little pullout, and we all get our snowshoes on, and we've got the puppies, and so it's Sebastian, Jamie, myself, and our dogs, Copper and Jack, and Joe, and we all get out of the car, and her and Joe go and they take a 10 minute head start gives Sebastian and I a couple minutes to you know just have that mom son moment before you know before the wedding so we go and we're walking along and it's just it is so beautiful it is snowing and it is white and the snow is deep and it is untouched. what are you guys wearing what are you wearing you're wearing big snowsuits you know it, it wasn't that cold we um oh. can had kind of scurried our favorite color is hot pink and oh, nice. blue and so i had a blue vest uh oh. like a down blue uh, yeah warm blue vest and she had a hot pink one and i had a, a hot pink tie and so I think we were all wearing she had blue jeans, jeans on and blue and jeans and snow boots oh, nice. and, and our matching vest was freaking adorable. <laughs> it was perfect. Yeah. And it wasn't about like, you're going to wear a tux and I'm going to wear yeah. a dress no. or we're going to do anything like that. It was, we're going to be comfortable and we're going to be in our favorite things. So yeah. truly I had my very favorite Lulu yoga pants on <laughs> and I bought this black lacy shirt. So I had some lace on my arms and these vests and that was it. And um, nothing at all fancy. I I mean, Sebastian had jeans on. He didn't have any snow boots, so he had to borrow a friend's snow boots. And so he has camo snow boots on. Oh, that's awesome. Um, with his, um, you know, with his snowshoes. But we turned this corner, and Jamie had thrown out all of these rose petals, red and pink rose petals, all in this big, huge spot of untouched snow. Well, it was touched after the dogs got a hold of it, but we stood there. Um, Joe was our photographer. He said a few words. We wrote our own vows, and really, that's what it was about. It wasn't you know, Jamie had a very religious upbringing. I didn't. Um, and that wasn't anything that we wanted. All that we wanted was our little family to be able to stand in front of each other and tell each other how much we loved each other and how excited we were for our, the rest of our lives to start. And that's exactly what we did. It was absolutely perfect. It was every single thing that we wanted to say to each other. And... Um, You know, all of the things, all of the things that, 
you know, that happened in her life, that happened in my life, the, you know, the struggles, the challenges, the, you know, the life lessons that we learned. We made it through all of it. Mm. We made it through addictions and failed relationships and really, really, really hard times. And now there is this amazing, beautiful human standing in front of me, telling me how much she loves me and my son and wanting to spend the rest of her life with me. It was every single thing that I ever wanted wrapped up in this 30 minutes. We are now two years later, and in March will be our two-year anniversary. That sounds like a fairy tale wedding. It was a fairy Who tale. Who cares wedding. about the ones before? That is a totally. fairy tale we- it wedding. It was a dream come true. Wow. I mean, this is what it's all about, right? right? Yeah. Uh, so beautiful. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, Jamie and Janice will answer questions from you, our intentionally disruptive podcast listeners. Here's Microformula's life coach, Sarah Fisk, for the one thing you need to know. Hold up. Here's one thing you need to know. Hi, this is Sarah Bybee Fisk, life coach with Microbe Formulas with one thing you need to know about love. We are taught that love is an emotion that other people give us. But I want you to stay with me as I want to suggest that love is actually an emotion that we create when we think loving thoughts. It's not actually something that other people give us. If I think my husband or wife or girlfriend or partner or boyfriend, whatever, loves me, it's because I'm having the thought that they love me. And the reason this is so amazing to consider is that it means that I can create the experience of love for myself with my own thoughts. And I can create it for myself anytime I want to. Me loving myself isn't actually dependent on anyone else. And that's a really great thing. Because if I can love me, if I can do that for myself, and if I don't give that job to other people, then it is a stable, reliable love. Ever notice how oftentimes we go up and down depending on if we think other people love us? Well, because it's not their job to love us. First and foremost, it is our jobs to love ourselves. And when we are doing a good job of that, then it's a lot easier to go out into the world and find relationships that are healthy and good and which allow us to have loving thoughts about other people as well. So love starts with you, with the thoughts that you think about yourself. It's got you thinking, doesn't it? You're like, give me more. This is Intentionally Disruptive with Shauna McNeil. So our Intentionally Disruptive podcast team, they reached out to listeners to see if they had any questions for you two. And this is this is what we got. This is from Lori in Texas. We have listeners all over. Uh, she asks, how do you make time for each other while juggling parenthood and full-time jobs? And do you have any date night ideas? <laughs> Please don't say running because I'm going to be jotting these down too. <laughs> I'm not ready to run yet. One of our very favorite date nights was she put together this amazing little 
Charcuterie board. Yep. And I say consumption board. Uh, yeah. Consumption board. You know I love it. It's meat and cheese. I love it. Yeah. And um, she packed up this beautiful dinner and our chairs and put them in the back of the truck. And we went and sat on the side of Dry Creek where, I mean, this is truly our spot. The I love you spot, the where we got engaged spot, the where our baby cows are. And we just sat there in front of our baby cows and had dinner. You know, you just do these little just these little things that just, you know, make your day. So you, again, you have to make that time. If it's important to you, it will happen. Uh, all right, so your second question, uh, Cassandra in Indiana, they say, don't waste a good fight by not learning from it. What have you learned from your past arguments? That was a really good question. Well, that's a, that was a good one. Oh, wow. One thing that we have definitely worked on over the past few years is just that. Um, we have very different communication styles. Um, she's an activator, which means that she makes a decision and acts on it instantly. Like, no, doesn't think about it, just does it. And so she can make those decisions quick. So when it comes to an argument, it's, it's the same deal. You know, there's a very quick response. And I am like, give me a second. Yeah. I need to think about that. Why? And I need to, she says why. Yeah, why? Yes, exactly that, needing to know the why. But we have learned and grown from every single argument that we have had, every fight, every whatever, you know, and also every great experience too, not just the learning from the arguments, but we're also learning from the good things. You know, how can you do better every single time? And, you know, in that moment, you're obviously not thinking, gosh, how could I do this differently? But after the fact, we do. We sit down and we're like, you know what? I think we did better that time. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. and this is and, and we're grownups so now. We yeah. do, yes. Yeah. And every yeah. time we do, we celebrate that win because that's a big win. You know, we're fighting better than we did a year ago, or you know, we are learning from it. So, as ridiculous as it might sound, I mean, we do have those conversations after we, you know, if we have a discussion, a disagreement, an argument, or whatever of. Um, how we are getting better every single time because we acknowledge it and we celebrate it. The final question, and this is just from me, what advice do you have for those who struggle to be themselves? And that's in any, I know for me, I love that quote, if you're too much for people, those aren't your people. Mm. If you seem too much for people, those aren't your people. And I've struggled with that, I'm afraid to be myself. You know, because I'm t I'm kind of anxious. I'm over the top about things. I get too worked up, or I'm too hyper, or too high strung. You know, are they going to like me? Are people going to? How are they going to treat me? So I always feel like I have to have this mask on all the time. I feel hmm. like, you know, I, I don't know. I, I struggle with it. And um, what advice do you have after everything you guys have been through? What advice do you have for those who struggle with the same? So, I have always been a no judgment you love everybody and bringing up this amazing human sebastian to see that he responds the same way he loves everyone he doesn't care about labels he doesn't care about any of that you know it is just like everything is just an open book you just be to be you are kind because that is what you are supposed to be you are a good human because that is what you're supposed to be I personally, and just down to my core, um, I feel like everyone just needs to be ridiculously kind. I think as people, we start to make things too difficult. Mm -hmm. I think that everything can be so simple. 
you can go outside and enjoy the beauty because it is simple. I think that we need to stop overcomplicating everything, stop thinking so hard about things, stop trying to label all of these things, and just be a ridiculously kind human, be authentically beautiful, to have compassion and grace for everyone because every single one of us just want to be loved and adored. And then when you find that person that meets all of the, all of the above, then you marry her. <laughs> Thank you both so much. I appreciate you guys sharing your story, and uh, I want to. I just, I just thank you. I've learned so much. I mean, I know we've we've done, you know, um, we've talked. We talked for hours <laughs> a couple <laughs> weekends ago, and I, I still, I just learned something from you each time we talk. So thank you very much. Uh, coming up next week, it's episode number four of the Unconventional Love Story series. It's called Aliens Pizza Hut. And old love. That's awesome. Ron and Charlotte will join the podcast to share their story on what it takes to make a marriage last. Ooh, that's a little taste of what's to come next week on Intentionally Disruptive. This podcast is all about everyday people sharing their story, their triumphs, because, I mean, we're all broken. Every single one of us are broken and a constant work in progress. And this is all about people helping people. And you've helped me today. Intentionally Disruptive is presented by Microbe Formulas. Visit us at microbeformulas.com.